Radio. This is Catholics Read on Cradio.org.au. Welcome to the second episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke and joined by Victoria. Hey. And Kiara, who's not in the studio at the moment thanks to Sydney transport problems. Not on her end though. But nonetheless, thanks to the wonders of the internet, she is joining us. So hello, Kiara. Hello, everybody. Okay, so we are looking at book two of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. If you missed the first episode, because it's the internet, it's really easy. Just go back to the Cradio website and find it. But we talked about book one of Mere Christianity, which spoke about God himself and also the preface, uh, which spoke about the background of the book. This time, it's led into Christianity itself. So really, what Christians believe, uh, what is it that makes Christianity and not really necessarily the practices, but the idea behind who Christ is, why he came, what is the notion of atonement, that kind of thing. So, Chiara, Victoria, do you have any words to say? Any initial impressions? Um, he starts off right, you know, he kind of is after establishing that there is such thing as an external force that has created right and wrong and we can perceive what that right and wrong is. He then kind of goes into, okay, so if we assume that this entity that created right and wrong is God, how do we understand God? And he argues that there are basically two kinds of conceptions of God and one of them is a pantheistic notion of God which sees, you know, God imbues the whole universe but doesn't necessarily control anything or he's neither good nor evil, he just is and he's in the trees and in the flowers and in people and, you know, that kind, you know, avatar kind of stuff. And um, whereas the Christians believe that God is, is good, um, he takes sides. He loves love and he hates hatred, to quote C.S. Lewis. And that's the God of, you know, that's the God of Christianity. That's the God of Semitic faith. So you include Jews and Muslims in that as well. Victoria, do you have anything to add to that? I think uh, what you're referring to is, I think he goes into dualism. Yes. Yeah. So he goes into um, what he calls oh, something like the manliest other version of like theory that it's out there, though it does have flaws, as he points out. That's dualism, basically, that there are two forces at work, one bad, one good, neither was created, neither is better than the other, but they're both at war in this universe. So and it kind of like that there's two all-powerful beings, mm. one being good and one being bad, something that we'd probably see in some forms of Eastern religion, for example. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it also was not uncommon in early, you know, in the early days of Judaism and Christianity, you know, just around the place. Yeah, as in certain heresies. So, like, uh, I believe, I may be wrong, Manichaeism and things like that. Manichaeism is a dualistic notion, yes. So, yeah, this kind of, this kind of dualism, um, as I said, an idea that there's a good all-powerful being and a bad all-powerful being. And he kind of shows some level of respect for that idea, but then shows that it's really infeasible because both of them, if you have this idea that one is good and one is bad, you're appealing to something higher than that, uh, some kind of standard again, as we looked at. Which would be the, the true God, book. as C.S. Lewis points exactly, out. Exactly, yeah. So if you have this all-powerful good being, an all-powerful bad being, there must be an even more all-powerful being that they're being measured up against. And that's why it ends up being quite illogical. 
uh, for that idea to really be around. Even though it has been quite popular uh, in the early heresies of Christianity, and I think kind of does remain fairly popular in in sort of new age ideas that we have today. It's even common among Christians, like the whole, like, you know, manifestation of a dualistic notion or, you know, however subtle it is, it might be that people who say the spirit is the good holy part of me and the body is the bad, dirty, evil part of me, that's a dualistic notion, even though it's very subtle and not as obviously dualistic, it still kind of pervades contemporary culture, particularly as, you know, we've got such critical formation in some of the more Puritan movements in England and that kind of thing. So it's still there, even in Christianity, unfortunately. But he does kind of logically destroy the dualistic notion because you can't be bad. He argues you can't be bad for the sake of being bad because it's not an entity in itself. It's an absence of something. And I think, you know, that kind of puts, you know, hits the nail on the head and puts it to bed in a way. So, yeah, I guess what C.S. Lewis is doing now is that he's, in book one, he established the idea of God. And at the moment, he's kind of looking, he's shaving away uh, problematic ideas that may arise from that, whether that be pantheism, that it's essentially an indifferent concept of God, uh, or a dualism where it's both good and bad, and that they're opposed to each other and equally opposite to each other. And from that, uh, we then go on to a kind of watered-down Christianity, uh, as it were. This kind of, he talks about a boy's philosophy, I think is the term that he uses. Uh, Yeah, what he does here is that um, he says there are kind of two types of people or two views they take. Um, Either one person constructs this level of Christianity that's good enough for about a six-year-old and says, no, this doesn't make sense, it's not intellectual enough, and, you know, get rid of it. But then when you engage them with something that's a lot more intellectual, the the faith of an adult perhaps, they say, no, 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 this this religion is not what, if there was a God, he'd want. He'd want it to be simple because simplicity is beautiful. And so C.S. Lewis is just pointing out that you you just can't win with these people. You yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting actually when you say that because when I see a lot of the um, a lot of the arguments between Christian philosophers and atheists, for example, that they kind of have this idea in their head that Christianity believes uh, in X type of God that they think that Christianity believes in, and if you look at really more deep philosophical ideas that, as I mentioned last week, St Thomas Aquinas, St Augustine. All the great philosophers down the ages, uh, even non-Christian philosophers, uh, have thought of. They react with, oh, well, surely, you know, the man on the street didn't think that about God. uh, So, therefore, that can't be the God you're talking about. And so, as you said, you can't win. You know, Mm -hmm. they try and poke holes in this straw man that they set up for God, saying that he's too simple. Or not simple in the philosophical sense, but simple in um, in the sense of easy to explain. You know, they try and poke holes in this childish notion of the, uh, what they would say, the big man in the sky kind of idea. And then when you try and explain, well, no, it's actually more complicated than that, they then go the complete opposite way and say, Mm. oh, well, that's too complicated. You know, no one could possibly believe that. And you can't win. I was just going to point out, like, you know, you see it in classic, you know, in some of the classic debates with some of the 
new atheist today and it's uh, it's unbelievably frustrating like you know what was it was it bill nye the science guy versus the what what's his face i don't know his name the creationist guy but you know that's a classic kind of case in point of christianity and you know science going head to head when it really shouldn't and and basically both of the, what they were both attacking were caricatures of each other there was no substance to it whatsoever and trying to and like you you watch Richard Dawkins try and debate about god he has this whole idea of god that's not actually god and so of course and you know and you have often find you know Christians and philosophers saying we agree with you demolish that that does, that's not god and then when they try and actually engage him in some real substance he do, he just doesn't want to do it because it's too it's easier to believe it's easier to have that straw man to make attack all the time and it's frustrating for Christians because we're going, well, yeah, we agree with you, Richard Dawkins. We agree with you that the God that you describe in the first paragraph on the God delusion, I think it must have taken a week, a week to make up those adjectives. I can't even remember what they are. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, no, that is not, that is not God. You know, you're right. It is not God. We don't believe in that God. But for some reason, you think that we do. Because it's easier for you to live your life if you think that's what yeah. we believe. And, you know, and then it's, but then it's easy to explain some of the bad things that Christians do as well because, oh, well, clearly they've got a faulty concept. You know, they've got this ridiculous notion of God, so no wonder they do, stu- you know, they do bad things. It's like, that's, again, it's a little more complicated. That's a nice little segue, actually, talking about bad things Christians do because that's another objection that we find is that if what we've described here, that God is good, then why do people do bad things? After Mm. all, you say that God is all-powerful. How can people do bad things then? If, you know, bad things happen, you know, why didn't God come in and stop it? And C.S. Lewis addresses this point next, and he talks about the notion of free will, uh, which can be something that, as I said, because we've just described God as being all-powerful, can be very difficult for people to understand. But the great thing, the fantastic thing about Christianity uh, is the revealed truth that God is indeed love and that as part of this love, God has given free will uh, so that people may choose to reject or to accept him, that we're not simply robots. I mean, if you were to, this is a very uh, simple example and not really applicable to the relationship between man and God, but nonetheless, it gives you a good idea that if my wife I don't have a wife, but if my wife was to be a robot, for example, and she was pre-programmed to love me, uh, in inverted commas, would you say that she actually loved me? And we'd say, well, no, because she doesn't really have a choice in the matter. Uh, She wouldn't have done any other thing. Uh, She's simply a robot who's pre-programmed to love you. It's very similar to us as humans that we've been given this choice to love God. Now... That's really amazing, that that insight that we get into God, that God has given us the ability to reject him. Now, it's, to use a a rather silly term, no flies on him, because God is God and he does not change whether everyone in the world rejects him or not. It would be terrible, but nonetheless, that's the choice that he's given us. But that's because of the nature of who he is, that he is love. And this is really what C.S. Lewis talks about here to try and answer the objection, why do bad things happen? Bad things happen because God has given given us the choice to accept or to reject him. And so therefore some people might do and will reject him. Now that's not to say, as C.S. Lewis then proceeds to point out, 
that, again, going back to the robot thing, that people will definitely, there's no way around it, reject him and that this has been preordained since the beginning. And I find this to be a very interesting point because I think he's already alienated certain sections of Christianity from his mere Christianity, which is... I may not be representing this correctly, but my impression is that some sections of Calvinism have this idea. Uh, Kiara, did you want to go into that a little bit further? Um, well, it's called predestination Calvinism, and it basically and it's an interpretation of scriptures and theology that says that free will that whilst people may have free will, it's essentially a useless feature of humanity because God, being all powerful and all knowing has already preordained who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And so, therefore, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to change that fact, no matter how good you, how well you behave or how bad you behave. You might be a saint and you'll still end up in hell because God has predestined it that way. You might be a, you know, an absolute mass-murdering serial killer. I mean, I'm extrapolating a bit here and just taking it to its logical conclusion, but, you know, you might be the a raving axe murderer and still end up in heaven because that's where God ordained that you would go. So um, C.S. Lewis was really alienating predestination Calvinists, which at the time, you know, which is still a significant section of Protestant Christianity and it is and it's a stance that Catholics have outright rejected um, because that's because, you know, free will is real and does have a real impact on our, on the next life and we do have the fr- we do actually have that legitimate freedom it's not just some artifice that god you know just happened to give us even though he can actually override it so it's um c.s lewis is taking a really strong stand saying no that's not christian that's not necessarily a christian notion the more christian notion is a more nuanced concept of free will and it's it's been a common problem in phil- you know in a, the common philosophical debate between determinism more broadly and notions of free will um and it's a debate that's been going on in christianity since you know the you know since the early days you know it's cal you know it might be called calvinism now but it was called other things oh other heresies way back in the day but he does try to put it to bed though and i think he puts it to bed quite well i think the thing to point out though is that catholicism doesn't necessarily have an incredibly strict teaching on this uh in the sense of a kind of laissez-faire free will, that there is little bits of room to move within that. The more, uh, I guess, prominent historical example of that is between the Dominicans and the Jesuits. But that's much too big for us to go into on this review of mere Christianity. So, yeah, I guess, Victoria, we'll did you want to We'll stick on? with the free will. Um, C.S. Lewis then goes on to point out that with this free will, as Luke mentioned a bit before, humans do have the choice to not choose God and what's not God. That's It's bad. It's badness, which is the absence of good. And so humans do bad. The human race does do bad things. And as he quotes here, this badness comes from a pride. It comes from putting oneself first, um, wanting to replace the self with God almost. And if you'll allow me, I'll quote a bit from the book because I found this fantastic. And out of this hopeless attempt, that is to put oneself first, has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Mm-hmm. This is just how we, you know, 
molds words into gold. It's excellent. Yeah. Now, from that point and from the first book, where he takes off is man does bad things. Everyone knows that. And man cannot pull himself out of that mire of bad things. The only one who can do that is someone who is perfect, someone who is God. And so that's how he really leads into Christianity proper. He leads into this idea that there was a man about 2,000 years ago who came and claimed that, that he was God and more shockingly claimed things that, that can only be uh, claimed by a person who is God, and that is the power to forgive sins. Now, I love this because I think it's something that after 2,000 years of Christianity, we've kind of gotten used to, and I think everyone, as he points out, everyone's just kind of taken this to, for granted, that there was this man who 2,000 years ago said that he could forgive sins. And he points out the absurdity of this in that it's as though this man comes along and says that I forgive the sin that, say, for example, I did against Victoria. So say I stole Victoria's shoes. I don't know why I'd do that, but <laughs> I stole Victoria's shoes. And then... You like high heels. <laughs> <laughs> he comes along and he says, I forgive you for that. Now, this is quite absurd because... I'm the it, only one that can really forgive this. Yeah, exactly. So obviously that there's... I've done something not only against Victoria, but against someone else. And it's against that all-powerful being that C.S. Lewis describes that we measure ourselves up against, the perfect good that's described in that first book of mere Christianity. And that person is God. Now, there's a lot more that Christ claimed, um, especially from a Jewish perspective, that really gave away that he is claiming that he is God. And that this is shocking. Uh, and something that we've really lost. Now, he puts out a rather famous amongst Christians dilemma. Many people like to simply take Jesus' teachings on most popularly today, uh, he who is without sin cast the first stone, but deny his divinity. Now, what C.S. Lewis says is that you've set up a dilemma there. He's either the Lord he put, I think he says he's either a lunatic or the devil himself. Yeah. They're the other two options. That's the other two options. And this is usually phrased as liar, lunatic, or lord. And I think this is brilliant for today because I think a lot of people like to take Jesus' teachings. You know, they, they're not even necessarily Jesus' exact teachings. They're simply our own interpretations of his teachings and say, I like that. I'm going to implement that into my life and I'm just going to keep on cruising. You know, as though nothing ever happened. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is meant to come in and smack you over the head and say, you have got to change your life and follow this man who is also God. And in fact, you have to do much more than that. You have to die unto yourself. Exactly. Yeah, It's one of those temptations that I think even for Christians and even for us as Christians is to domesticate Jesus, to put him in a little pen 2,000 years ago and say, oh, look, isn't he wonderful? He was such a great moral teacher. Um, you know, he's got teachings for everybody. And yet we kind of ignore the bit where he is God and he came to challenge us. You know, he asked us, who do you say I am? And... You know, that no, no other, you know, Father Robert Barron points out no other founder would ever ask that. And I just love the way C.S. Lewis just puts it. He just, you know, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
And I think that, and that kind of is how he ends the chapter and then goes into um, how we respond to the fact that Jesus came along and said that he is God and he is also, he is also a man and he forgives our, and he forgives our sins. And it just drives me nuts when I see people trying to domesticate Jesus, especially when they say, well, he wasn't really being too harsh. It's like, yes, he was. <laughs> you know, he's here to make us change. And if you ever watch any great speaker to do that, you have to, you know, drag people a mile with you to get them to move an inch. So it's, um, I just love the fact that he really tries to kill that temptation to put Jesus in a pen or put him in a nice little moral teacher box that is not who he is. Yeah. In fact, he's so much more. He um, not only came to teach, but C.S. Lewis pointed out that if you look at the New Testament, Christians seem to believe that his dying was the big part of it all. Yes, he came and told us beautiful things, beautiful true things, but it was his death that's the big wowzer of the of the whole thing. What do you think about that, Luke? Yeah, absolutely. As C.S. Lewis says, you know, it's not it's not the teaching that we focus on. Uh, the what's called the kerygma, uh, the the real crux of the faith that we proclaim, is not. God became man and taught us a lot of good things. things. (laughs) Exactly. He became man, he died for us, and he rose from the dead. That bit there, the dying and the rising from the dead, is the main bit. Uh, I've heard before that they talk about that the Gospels are all crucifixion narratives with very long introductions. Um, (laughs) And it's it's true, because that's really the centre uh, and as Catholics, you know, with with the Mass, uh, the sacrifice of the Mass, that we look at, what did God do for us? And what is the reverberation throughout all of history that that, that is? Now, C.S. Lewis kind of goes into how, just how mind-blowing this is and how really next to impossible it is to try and describe this because he said that one of his problems while he was an atheist was that he thought that the only way that you could be a Christian was subscribing to this very specific theory about what the atonement is, so the way that the atonement worked. And what he says is, no, not necessarily. Uh, That what Christianity is, is that Christ became man, he died, and that this death atoned for our sins in some way. The details there are not what make you a Christian. It's that belief that is what makes you a Christian. But yeah, the, that really is what Christ did for us. He uses this really cool analogy that Christ uh, came in like a, like a secret agent, undercover, as man, because it's only in that way uh, that he could achieve the atonement um, that was required for the Lord to achieve, because he is the perfect penitent, as he put it. Um, he's the, the man without sin, the ultimate good man who's the only man who could possibly atone for our sins because no sinful man could do that. Only God who became the perfect man Mm. and retained his... Yeah, he does say that, um, and I'm going to paraphrase this horribly, that the further a man sins, the further away he goes from God, the harder it is for him to come back. And so he makes this comparison. He says that it's like a child learning how to write and having a teacher hold his hand as he writes. Now, the teacher is more is more educated. He knows how to do it. Um, and he 
firstly says this is how we love. We can love because God is holding our hand and loving first and teaching us how. And it's the same with humility and submission. We can only do that if we follow the great teacher who is holding our hand. But God in his nature, uh, it's out of his nature to submit and to suffer. In This is how he puts it. Sometimes I got a bit confused because love is suffering, but it's the particular context in which he's saying it. So he said that for a human to do it, a man, ha- God has to do it first, which is why Jesus is really the only solution to this whole problem. Uh, Luke, what do you think? Yeah, it's really just as C.S. Lewis says at the start of his final chapter in this book, that the perfect surrender and humiliation were undergone by Christ. Perfect because he was God, surrender and humiliation because he was man. Now, as we become disciples of him, we join because we are also men, of course. We join in that surrender and humiliation that Christ went through. We share in, as he says, his conquest of death and find a new life after we have died in it, become perfect and perfectly happy creatures. This is not, as C.S. Lewis says, simply a kind of mental osmosis that we simply learn his teaching and then somehow we will become followers of Christ and take part in his atonement. No, no, no. We have to really share in that humiliation and suffering that Christ went through. It really requires a tangible effort on our part. This is not simply some kind of philosophy or idea of the way that you live your life or something like that. We need to become part of that body, that body of Christ, and that is the church. And so C.S. Lewis goes through that in his next section. So C.S. Lewis uses a wartime, a classic wartime metaphor to kind of illustrate why Christ became man to an audience that would be very, very familiar with it. So he uses, as Luke has already mentioned, he uses the image of a spy, you know, the spy going into enemy territory. But you've got to remember that um, the other the other part of the metaphor is that the spy is, you know, the spy disguised as a man is going into rebel territory to try and free people who are caught there. And, you know, and to, you know, to atone for our, you know, to atone for sins and for, and to set us free. And this is a, you know, this is, I mean, this is a classic kind of World War II metaphor. This is exactly what was going on, you know, across Europe at the time, you know, English, British spies being sent into France and Germany undercover and that kind of thing. And he kind of points out that God does not go in all you know, pell-mell, he goes kind of this sneaky route because people probably, A, people probably wouldn't recognise him if he came in full ball anyway. You know, he's going to do the, do things the way he does so that we have time to choose to join him or not. And the devil's kind of doing the same thing on the same side as well. And, you know, C.S. Lewis points out, you know, he says there are a lot of people who are asking God for direct intervention. And, you know, this is a time when Europe was, you know, people thought it was the end of the world anyway, so they were asking God to come down. And he's going, you know, and he says, you know, do people have any idea what they're asking for when they ask God to intervene? Like, because when God intervenes, it's the end of the world. Mm. And it's the end of free will as we know it. If we, yeah. if we saw God in all his glory face to face, there's... N- that's it. That's it's it. all over. We will either love him or we will be filled be with complete terror and want to completely run away. And that would be it. Now, I'm glad... 
that that wasn't how it happened the first time. And I think a lot of people would be because he's worked with our free will. And there will come a time at the second coming when he does that. But for the moment, he's given us that opportunity to choose his side. Now, C.S. Lewis goes through what does that choosing that side involve and what I said uh, talking about the church. uh, And he talks about the three main areas, which are belief, baptism and holy communion. But I think those are probably a bit too deep to go into today. Probably something that he will go through in the next book. So, yeah, that's that's pretty much where he leaves it. He leaves it at that point that says, this is what Christ did. Now, what does it mean to follow him? And that's what we'll be looking at in the next episode. Can't wait. Yes, indeed. Uh, So, the next book is on Christian behaviour. Yeah, that's uh, book three of Me Christianity. We've just obviously gone through book two, but if you've missed book one, check it out on the Cradio website. Indeed. Uh, So... Thank you all for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Kiara, for joining us from the other side of the Sydney Harbour. No worries. And thank you, Victoria, for joining me from the other side of the desk. It's a pleasure. And we hope that you're all having a wonderful day uh, and that you will be glued to your seats for the next episode of Catholics Read as we look at the next book of Mere Christianity. So thank you all. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That was an episode of Catholics Read from cradio.org.au.